0: The Akkad and Koka Report, episode number 48. Welcome to the Akkad and Koka Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare. From policy to economics, from evidence-based medicine to ethics. Join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Koka diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Akkad and Koka Report. I'm Michel Akkad with you in San Francisco and my co-host Danish Koka joins us from Philadelphia. In 550 BC, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously declared, No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he is not the same man. Today we will be learning from our guest whether scientists can step into the same data pool twice, and obtained the same research results twice. Uh, Professor Brian Nozek uh, teaches uh, psychology at the University of Virginia, but he is also the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Open Science, an organization dedicated to fostering transparency and collaboration in scientific research. In 2015, Professor Nozek and his team published in the journal Science a widely acclaimed and widely discussed paper that shed light on the extent to which psychological research findings may not be reproducible when the research is conducted anew. And more recently, his center conducted a unique project where a single data set was sent to be analyzed um, by about 30 independent teams of statisticians for the purpose of answering a single question. The variability in the methods chosen and in the, an- and in the answers obtained was also perhaps sobering, if not perplexing. Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Great to have you. I think Anish will start with a question uh, about your most, you know, this paper I just mentioned uh, where you sent one data set to a bunch of different statisticians.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Brian, I'm gonna let you do a a lot of the talking here. So can you you tell us what exactly you were trying to show uh, with this
1: paper? Yeah, the question that we had was about the choices that researchers make when they're deciding, once they have a data set, how to analyze it. Usually this is thought as the mundane aspects of doing the research, right? The real exciting things are conceptualizing the question and designing a study for how you're going to test that question and then interpreting the data once you've seen what happens. And mostly we think of data analysis as this sort of rote task, just like putting numbers in a calculator and seeing what pops out. But what we know is that the practice of applying statistics to data actually has a lot of choices in it, a lot of creativity uh, in how it is people decide what's the right way to extract some knowledge uh, from a data set. And so what we wanted to do was try to, in some ways, examine that in this case study, right? One data set with an interesting question uh, that we passed to 29 independent teams and say, please analyze this to try to test, uh, see what answer you come up with for this question. They all had the same question they had to answer. Uh, and then we looked at the choices that they made. How did they decide to analyze the data? And then the key was, that does it matter? If they have different choices that they make along the way, do they come up with different results? Do those choices have implications for what we learn from the data set?
2: And, and so this was, a, this was a real data set that uh, you acquired from, a, uh, I believe, soccer, uh, players of football and uh, uh, looking at uh, red cards that were given by referees and whether or not referees would give more red cards based on skin tone, correct? That's
1: right. That's right. Um, in common with a lot of research on, on biases, people may unintentionally, in this case, referees may unintentionally... Be more likely to give red cards to players of darker skin yeah. tone compared to lighter skin. I,
2: I thought it was. To, I mean, it's such an eye-opening uh, paper to read that everyone really, everyone who really reads. Papers should read because usually, you know, it's this, It's that one line that says we did some type of logistic regression using SAS or this, right, and right. it's just literally one line and then the rest of the time we spend you know talking about all these different things oh, what you know. we found
1: what, what we found yeah yeah, yeah and,
2: right and essentially your paper takes that one line <laughs> yeah and and really just you know is mind-blowing to you know folks that don't do a lot of clinical research like me to, to show you oh my goodness like here, this is what's going on uh un- under the uh, uh under under the hood um so um one of the interesting things i thought was how you how you went about assembling these teams i mean this is a you know, 29 different statistical teams. So can, can you, I thought it was super interesting because it ties into social media in terms of how you went about uh, assembling this team.
1: Yeah, well, we have been for a little while sort of plugged into the methodology community that crosses across different scholarly domains, right? Pure statistics, people in behavioral sciences, biostatisticians. Uh, and so this community likes to wrestle with interesting problems uh, that have to do with analyzing data. And usually, it's on innovating on new ways to analyze the data rather than sort of a self-study of how we ourselves make the decisions about data analysis. And so, the, the project came together by simply by tweeting out, uh, hey, we're doing this thing. We're going to analyze this interesting data set. Do you want to join in uh, and be part of it? And I I think it was like 40 teams initially said, oh, we, we want to take part. And then we whittled them down once we sort of realized, they realized that they actually had to do some work. Uh, and uh, we wound up with, with 29 that followed through with the project all the way.
2: Amazing. So uh, essentially it was crowdsourced through Twitter, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, we'll, 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 so let's get to the actual uh, results here. So you um, uh, had this complex data set uh, of all these football teams. You uh, gave it out to 29 uh, different teams. And we're going to get into some of the details about, you know, all the different stages. But t- yeah. tell, us, tell us what you found.
1: Yeah. So at the front end on the choices people make, uh, no two teams analyze the data in precisely the same way. They all had some different decisions that you make that they made. And it may not be familiar, like what decisions do you actually have to make uh, when you're analyzing data? Uh, Well, this is a case where there's a lot of decisions to make because it's a complex data set, right? There are referees and there are players and then there are red cards. Red cards don't happen very often. Referees are sometimes referees for the same player in multiple different games. Uh, Players move around to different teams in different leagues There's all kinds of complexity and richness in this data set that you have to say, okay, well, how do I structure it in a way where I can even analyze the question? Uh, And so there are different kinds of models that people can generate uh, for how they analyze the data. And then there are also different choices of what kinds of things get included in the model, right? Do I exclude some people, right? If there are particular individuals that get red cards, every game, that doesn't happen, but you know, extreme uh, amounts of red cards or never get a red card, do we exclude them entirely from the data set? Do we exclude referees based on their patterns? Uh, Do we include covariates in the model? You would include a covariate in situations where you'd say, oh, there might this, we might see a relationship between red cards uh, and skin tone, but it might be spurious because of Differences that players with darker skin tone may be less likely to be in higher divisions than lower divisions. And so there may be some reason that that has an impact. And so you have to make choices about what covariates to include. So all of those decisions, people were making uh, different choices uh, along the way. So that's sort of bottom line number one. Then bottom line number two is what happens on the output side. Uh, And there are lots of different ways to characterize that. But the simple summary is that what uh, researchers are often looking for is a positive result. Do we see a relationship between these variables that we would say is a reliable result, unlikely to be due to chance? Or do we see an effect of this treatment on this outcome that is unlikely to have occurred uh, by chance? And by that criterion, where uh, in the world of p-values, you want a p-value less than 0.05, we found that about two-thirds of the team found a positive result. They did find a relationship between skin tone and likelihood of red card. And about one third of the teams found a negative result. No relationship meeting this 0.05 criterion. Uh, And then the effect sizes showed a, a fairly wide range across the different choices. So in any normal paper that we read, it would be the output from one of those teams, right? It's how they chose to analyze the data. So if we look at it in that way, then the paper we could have ultimately read of this data set had a 70% likelihood of being a positive result and a 30% or so likelihood of being a negative result. That's unbelievable, right? Yeah. I mean, it's the same data set.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, really incredible. So now now I'll point out, I guess, the forest plot that you had. You had a nice forest plot with all 2019, yeah. and uh, there was generally. I guess there was agreement, though, that there appeared to be some link between skin tone and red cards being given out. But I mean, I, again, I don't know. I mean, you, you're one of the uh, you know you're you're the gentleman who kind of one of the one of the gentlemen that kind of organized all this stuff. And I don't know how you <laughs> how you really did it and curated this all. It's really an amazing job. But you had a variety of different uh, stages where there was a ton of feedback being given. Right? Meaning, yeah, it almost it wasn't just that you gave the one data set to 20 different teams and, and you got a bunch of outputs you went right. through stage after stage after stage where there was a lot of collaboration between the teams giving feedback to each other on what the best an, uh, analytic method was uh, as well as you know or should we what covariates should, should we be using so yeah. it it almost it, uh, it almost suggests that you know the actual outputs would have been much, much, much more different if everyone had independently done this and not talked to each other, which is kind of what happens would happen in the real world, right? I mean, in the real world, uh, yeah. you don't have, I mean, you don't have multiple people talking.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so there were, we gave ourselves a tough test and the re, there are a couple of reasons we did that. One is that we are kind of trying to simulate the peer review process.
2: So oh, you may okay.
1: get reactions from reviewers saying, Oh, I don't I agree see. with your analysis plan.
2: So, so, so you, so the statistical teams were sufficiently experienced, and uh, and 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 that that's 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 great. I mean, they, 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 you were simulating kind of the peer review process because essentially, you know, if peer review works as it should, folks that choose analytical models that are bad would get kind of uh, filtered out. That's right. See. Right. Exactly. Um, it, uh, does that Do you think that happens a lot um, uniformly in in all in, in, in various different fields? I know one of the comments I hear frequently from uh, statisticians is that there aren't enough statistical folks um, or folks with a deep enough uh, knowledge base in statistics and say cardiology, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of stuff gets through even in the New England Journal of Medicine. You know, I hear Frank Harrell frequently <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is taking apart some paper or the other that's in the New England Journal of Medicine because, you know, it didn't. Get appropriate statistical peer review. So uh, are you, what you're describing in terms of what should happen, uh, do you think that actually does happen often or is this?
1: It's certainly not enough. Uh, so you're right. This is, I mean, just as you, you noted, it's the one line in a paper sometimes that we whiz right. by as we're reading it. It's also can be the one line in the paper that reviewers whiz by uh, either because they don't have the expertise themselves or even right. if they have the expertise, we just sort of assume, oh, of course they know what they're doing. Who would be crazy enough right. to do this in some nutty way? Uh, right. And so it's it is it's easy to overlook, and yet it is the point of our paper is it's fundamentally important. A few
2: more questions on the paper. Were there any um, models that the statistical community agrees? Are, uh, after the paper was published, uh, is there some widespread consensus that a couple of these statistical models are absolutely wrong, and we would never use that? Because,
1: uh, yeah, so there are uh, each at the very end. We had the teams uh, actively rate the quality uh, of the very. So just to recap the answer, because some some
2: of it some of it cut out. Uh, as, essentially, there were you know there were folks graded uh, the quality of it towards the end and. Some of them were graded not so well, but that was a minority of methods that were deemed to be low quality. Is that? Is
1: That's right. Uh, and what okay. we've observed was that the, even when we compared high and low quality ratings, we couldn't detect the difference. It wasn't like all of the null results were mm. of low quality and a high re, a positive results uh, were high quality. It didn't predict okay. the quality of the, of the, didn't predict the uh, outcome.
2: I see. I I also noticed um, a, f- a fairly wide disagreement um, on the on covariates used. Um, some teams no. use no covariates. Uh, I think there was like of the twenty nine teams, there were like twenty one unique combinations of covariates That's right. used. That's um, right. That's So how? I mean, is that is that something that would be made better by some person with a deep subject matter expertise? Like, did you did you need like um, you know, messy to be uh, advising. <laughs> advising on what covariates you should be using and should be using was that was that the problem here did you guys need yeah. a footballer
1: well it, uh, it would have been great to have his feedback uh, but uh, it, it is a curi- covariance is a curious problem uh, because there isn't a real clear principled way to make decisions in all cases about covariates it's more it it is there is a lot of flexibility in how we can justify the. Uh, there's lots of rationales that one can generate uh, that um, that are ambiguous uh, whether a covariate yeah. needs to be included or not, uh, and so there there are no rules that we can easily lay out uh, to decide when covariates get included or not.
2: Right. So I guess that was my point about it would seem hard for. Somebody who doesn't have some type of deep knowledge in terms of football, meaning uh, to yeah. try to figure out what 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 is a covariate that should and shouldn't be used, perhaps. Um, yeah. How, how does how does how does one go about handling outliers, uh, Brian? What if, um, you know, in, in basketball, you know, the, the, there was these traditional Jordan the Jordan rules, right, where yeah. Michael Jordan, uh, you know, didn't get fouls called. LeBron James, I don't think has had a travel call in the last uh, 30 years yeah um <laughs> so how do you how do you go about handling outliers? Do you just eliminate outliers and not 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 kind of uh, use them at all or uh, yeah. what is the is there some standard approach to that
1: yeah, and well, there are standards, and people don't agree on which standard to use uh, and right. so that's the craziness, right? is that there are different what are fundamentally philosophies of statistics right uh in some right. cases, people say, look outliers is part of the phenomenon, right? You have to deal with, if you can't account for LeBron and Michael, then you're not actually accounting for the phenomenon. So you have to leave them in. And others say, no, no, outliers just really screw up the distributions. They they dominate the effect. And so if you include them, it's just impossible to make reasonable interpretations. It's really
2: interesting because you know you you very nicely in your paper and again just a wonderful job Brian of the paper in terms of how transparent you were in terms of laying everything out and there was a significant debate uh, just about this about the inclusion of certain covariates uh, whether the league or club um, using yeah. the league or club as a covariate was you know uh, was was what was responsible for a number of non-significant results and right. and and the and the reasons for that is that the data on the league and club was available at the time of data collection only and of course. The player may go to a different club and the player may go to yeah. a different league, right? Yeah. They may change over the course of the career. And and so, because there was such a disagreement about this, um, I guess the project manager asked the 10 teams that included these covariates to, re- to rerun the analysis and exclude, exclude them, uh, yeah. correct? That's that right. It just goes to show you. Uh, how how you know how uh important these decisions are that somewhat are are, are eventually seem opaque to the to uh, to the to the user um right. one one last question um, about the paper and then I let michelle uh, come in um how you know how did you go about um examining and again I thought you did a great job of this but how did you if you if you would explain how you went about examining? whether or not confirmation bias got at the hands of the researchers.
1: Yeah, this is a, a perennial challenge in how research gets done at all, all kinds of research, right? As we have skin in the game, I need certain kinds of findings in order to advance my career, right? I need novel and positive results. I also have my prior results. I have my beliefs about how the world works. I have what I want to have happen because of the potential for glory or fame or solving or curing something. Uh, And so all of that can lead my, the choices that I make in my analysis and what I choose to report to be more likely to show confirmation, right? Consistent with my previous expectations or hopes. So what we did in this case was we uh, just asked people what they thought the result was going to be. Uh, And we kept checking in with them. We asked them a few different times. What do you, what do you, so first make a prediction. What do you think the result's going to be? and then after now you've seen this analysis what do you think after you've seen the others analysis what do you think now that we've all debated it for ad nauseum weeks uh what do you think uh and the interesting thing here was that we didn't see uh, a relationship between initial expectations uh and the outcomes that the researchers observed uh so that doesn't sort of show that that effect of confirmation bias that we worry about a lot in research however all 29 teams knew we were watching them. <laughs> and This whole project was about how they make decisions, and so if we this if there's any sort of implication about confirmation bias, it's well make sure you have a, someone that's watching how you're doing. Everybody's doing their analysis, the <laughs> and then maybe it won't happen.
0: All right. Well, that's fascinating. But um, uh, of course, this particular paper is uh, is part of a. Bigger project of yours, and 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 I think you're really you're the point person in uh, in the US, perhaps in the whole wide world, um, that is tr- trying to address uh, the so-called uh, reproducibility crisis. Before we, we get into that, can you give us sort of a, a very broad, uh, I mean, in, in 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 broad brushstrokes, the 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 history of the uh, reproducibility crisis? Because it's, it's not new, right? People have been calling attention to it for for perhaps decades even.
1: Yes, decades. So the the core challenge is the the notion that we start with in science is that a a scientific claim becomes credible because it can be reproduced, right? I tell you how it is. I got my finding. I show you the methodology. I show you the data that I used. uh, And you can reanalyze that data, see if you get the same result. Or you could do the methodology again in a a new setting, a new sample, and see if the result obtains again. And that process of replication or reproduction gives us greater confidence uh, in claims. It shows that it applies in multiple circumstances, shows that it's a repeatable phenomenon. And the, the challenge is that uh, by and large in the recent history uh, of science, this has been more taken for granted uh, than performed in practice in, in many subdisciplines. not everywhere. Uh, and by by that, I mean that we uh, there is a implicit it certainly is people wouldn't endorse it explicitly, but sort of this implicit assumption that if it's published, it must be true. Uh, and so once a finding is in print, then it's taken very seriously as that's what that's what they observe. That's the finding. And the challenge that was identified by researchers in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was that, the published literature may not be as credible as we think it is. There are a lot of factors that may influence the likelihood that findings in the published literature are reproducible. Some mm-hmm. of an obvious one is publication bias. Uh, positive results are much more interesting most of the time than negative results. Finding that this thing is related to curing this disease. Well, wow, that's interesting. Finding that this thing is not related to curing this disease. Not so interesting. Uh, and so the uh, we across disciplines, whatever the field of study, positive results are more likely to get published than negative results. Likewise, there is a problem, a uh, pervasive problem of low power. Our sample sizes are too small to investigate the kinds of things that we uh, that we're studying. We don't have enough power to detect the effects that we're trying to investigate. So as a consequence in order to get a positive result, we have to get lucky uh, and obtain a result that's actually exaggerated. It's larger than it is in reality, uh, so that we can publish it. And then finally, there's all this discretion, right? In this project that we were just talking about, the mini analyst project, there's lots of choices that can be made. And if I have skin in the game where I need a certain outcome to advance my career and I analyze the data multiple ways, I may rationalize to myself, the ways that look better for publication to be the right ways to analyze the data. And so it's these combination of factors, low power, low sample size, publication bias, and this what is now often called p-hacking, right, of making uh, strategic choices in how you analyze your data all come to this possible conclusion that the published literature is much less credible than we assume it is uh, just because it's published. Right, so
0: Brian, I want to challenge you perhaps a little bit on on the the premise uh, yeah. that you mentioned at the beginning that uh, science should be replicable. Yeah, uh, because uh, you know that may be true when you're talking about the uh, you know the terminal terminal velocity of an apple falling to the ground, but when you're talking about psychology or medicine or social studies. Um, We're human beings, yeah. Right. We we in in a way we're not replicable. Uh, We don't (laughs) do the same thing twice, uh, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, And so, to what extent should should I mean? Why is there an expectation that uh, studies that involve human beings, whether it's psychology or medicine or uh, and so forth, social studies, uh, that they should be replicable?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, Uh, and the. This gets at another sort of core element of w- how science makes progress. Uh, one initial element is description, right? We just describe the phenomena that we're seeing in the world. But a second, very important part is prediction. That if our models of science of of the world are worth something, then they should be able to anticipate what is going to happen in the future. And so that applies whether we're studying humans or atoms or otherwise. Uh, Those models of how it is humans work, uh, in order for them to have value for us to use in terms of building theories about how the world works, about how humans work, how uh, bodies work, uh, they need to be able to make predictions. And so replication or reproducibility is a necessary element of prediction because we have existing data, existing findings, existing understanding based on the evidence that we have. And then we develop hypotheses about what we think will happen next based on our existing understanding. And so it is true that we may see high variation uh, in effects when we deal with complex phenomena like humans, but our, uh, what a replication is, is a theoretical statement. It's saying, given how I understand the world today, this is the study design that I need to obtain the same effect. I don't have any reason to see a different result uh, based on how we understand humanity. Uh, So if I do see a different result when I do this replication, then it means my existing models are incomplete. And that might happen a lot. uh, But if it happens a lot, it means that our models aren't very good yet. uh, And we need to know that in order to confront them and improve them. Yeah.
0: Yeah, So, I mean, uh, a related question would be, if you expect, uh, you know, you say, you know, you you grant that humans are not going to do the same thing, uh, you know, the same way or the same thing twice, or one human from another will, there will be some variation. um, How much variation do we expect? And what what constitutes uh, (laughs) the right amount of variation?
1: Yeah, this is an amazingly hard problem and we have almost no idea about it. Uh, And so we actually we had a paper come out today I mentioned uh, before we we started Uh, and the the paper is called Many Labs 2 and we have the series of papers it's related to the many analysts project we were just talking about. In this case, what we do is we take a uh, particular study design uh, and then we have dozens of different laboratories run that exact same study design in their own context And then what we evaluate is how much variation do we see? And so in many labs too, we took 28 findings. These are all psychology findings, classic and contemporary ones. Uh, And we recruited labs from 36 different countries. Uh, And we ran every single one of these 28 findings in 60 or more labs each. Uh, And what we wanted to see was one, could we replicate it in general? But more importantly, did we, we observe wide variability in replication, depending on the sample that we're collecting, right? Some of them are in Virginia, other ones are in Ohio, some are in Ghana, other ones are in China, right? Humans vary all over the place, so let's see if we can actually evaluate the extent to which variability between humans accounts for the likelihood of replicating result. So the top line result is that we succeeded in replicating uh, 14 of the 28 original findings. So we were able to replicate about half wherever it was they were studied. So even though we had 60 different labs, when we aggregate the data, uh, half of the studies don't show any evidence for the original finding. We had 60 times the sample size. Mm -hmm. Still didn't uh, replicate those results. For the ones where we did successfully replicate, there was some heterogeneity, right? There was some variation uh, in the effects, depending on the sample for for some of the findings but it was much smaller than you and I might sort of anticipate intuitively of, well, humans are different uh, kinds of uh, thinking. Uh, so it wasn't that it was irrelevant what the sample was, but essentially in terms of replicability, if there was an effect to detect, we could detect it everywhere with some variation. And if the effect wasn't very replicable, we couldn't detect it at all.
2: And that's, and that's somewhat... Um... And that's somewhat intuitive because there are some things that are uh, uh, are very common. For instance, if you occlude a coronary artery in a rat, a dog, or a human, you will yeah. progress to have an infarct. So there are some models that, yeah, you know, you would expect to replicate our replicable. I guess the hard part, which Michelle is touching on, and you know, is your field of work um, is. In the social sciences trying to sort out which which are truly rep- replicable and common or aren't it, for instance it seems at least from the outside looking in um it seems that it's a harder task to have science be self-correcting in the social sciences versus some of the other say you know uh, the biological life sciences let's say for instance Um, You know, if you look at the path of any things that we do today that are standard, whether it be uh, blowing up balloons and arteries of folks that are having acute heart attacks um, or the management of, you know, whatever, angina, there appear to have been like, you know, the progression from the whatever 1900s on that there were certain things that were tried that were you know, people published a bunch of case series saying, "Oh, look, this is positive." And then those there appeared to be some self-correcting mechanism where it just didn't work. There was enough of a group of folks that said this isn't working. Yeah. They either did a trial or even didn't do a trial and just abandoned. You know, abandoned the the study. So, I guess my question relates to whether or not um, you feel there are certain fields of study that are less uh, you know uh, have less of an ability to be self correcting uh, than others
1: yeah i i do think that it varies in terms of how hard it is based on a couple of factors uh, one of them which is a, a mundane one but critically important is how how easy is data acquisition if it's uh-huh. really easy to collect data then you can get to reproducible findings very very fast because you can just repeat it it's 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 free to run the study again Uh, And so there are areas like in psychology of of vision research where the visual system (laughs) works so reliably and consistently across people uh, that if you can get it in one person and do it very, very well, uh, then you can get it in everybody very fast. And so they have a very, lots of very, very reproducible phenomena, right? Visual illusions that get passed around. Everybody has the the experience with those. uh, And that's sort of part of uh, that area of research. Whereas others where data acquisition is really hard, did I, did I see it or did I not see it? I don't know. The data was sort of equivocal, but I can't do it again. Oh, it's, too, it's too expensive. I can't get those people to come in, right? So that is where it is really hard to make progress. And the second factor, I think, is the one that you were playing on, which is in areas where it's multiply determined. There are many different predictors that cause the same outcome and, the single, uh, and many outcomes influenced by a single predictor. Uh, those situations are very difficult, especially if the different uh, causes are interacting with each other uh, to potentially produce the effect, right? Like nutrition research. Oh, my gosh, what a yeah. hard area of research, yeah. right? Because you can't, you can't do a controlled study very easily on any part of the diet because of diets are so variable. There's so much going into our bodies. Uh, right. So it, it's just super hard uh, to do it. But the problem is is that it's super hard even for the original research. And this is what is underappreciated is that once when we're talking about replication, people say, oh, well, it didn't replicate because maybe because the sample is different. Well, how did you get it the first time, right? right? Did, Did you just land on the perfect conditions in order to observe that particular phenomenon by accident the first time? Or did you actually know something about how to design the study to detect it? And if you did know something, about how to design the study to detect it. Why can't we do that again? Uh, and so, there, I have sort of a general agreement with your point that the complexity matters a lot. Uh, but when we get into it, it gets very concrete very quickly about getting into yeah. the individual phenomenon.
2: Just a quick follow up to that. So, does it does a does a methodologist does a data scientist um, would they ever look at a um, a data set and walk away meaning are there that i wouldn't <laughs> analyze right yeah
1: <laughs> meaning,
2: it, you know it seems a lot of times it seems like like you know one, one of these papers that i love and i feel bad you know i feel bad banging it all the time but there's this there's this, this study just to give an example there's a study on uh, uh, mortality for male versus female physicians right yeah. and oh my goodness it's it to me it just looks so darn complicated to tease that out right it's like because there are no male hospitals only and female hospitals only, right? It's this yeah. incredibly complex thing and they have to make all these assumptions. And it's like, oh, if you, if you saw a male 51% of the time, then you were, then you, you're in the male group of being treated by physicians and except like the residents are, you know, those, that's attendings. And then the residents are male and female and the nurses are male and female. And, you know, what exactly is the, the thing that's driving outcome differences yeah, like I, I would look at that. I would. Well, again, this is me because, and uh, obviously, I, I have zero two, experience yeah. doing <laughs> clinical research. <laughs> but I would walk away from that and be like, "This is an impossible yeah. question to answer. We can't do it." Yeah.
1: Should should
2: should data scientists?
1: do that more? (laughs) Yeah, I I think there is a high degree of individual difference in tolerance for appropriateness of a data set for a particular question, uh, willingness to sort of jump into it. Uh, And uh, and so, yeah, I I can recall experiences where I had the question I want to investigate and then looking at the data and saying, I just can't study that question reasonably in this data set. Uh, And so didn't. Although I I think,
0: uh, I'm sorry, uh, Brian, but it seems that the the objection should start not uh, before you actually get the data set. I mean, it it has to do with the questions, the kinds of questions. That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. uh, So sometimes uh, we're trying to answer questions that there just is no preparedness (laughs) to be able to even wade uh, into. So to, to, you know, to use this, um, you know, this first,
0: this paper that we discussed at the beginning of the the episode as an example, uh, is the question. does bias uh, occur in uh, you know referees giving out red cards you know bias against you know dark skin tones occur is that a question uh for which empirical science that you know sort of would assume a null hypothesis and try to you know reject it or it? you know is that is that a good endeavor for empirical science to, is that a kind of a good question for empirical science to try to tackle uh, knowing that we're going to get, you know, sort of, uh, answer, you know, uh, as yeah. much uncertainty as you've revealed, which is, right. you know, very important to, to reveal right. it.
1: Yeah. So I think, they, I think the complex questions are worth studying. The danger, as, as Danny Kahneman, Kahneman uh, responded when asked, what's the biggest problem that humanity is facing? His answer was overconfidence. Uh, and I think that, that there is a lot of truth in that. It's this sense of, oh, well, I studied it, I got a number, I was able to do something with this data set, it looks kind of reasonable. Uh, and then we, we just lose sight of all the mythological challenges, right? The limitations, right? Like in that, that particular example, we can't draw any causal conclusion, right? right. We've, we found a relationship. And I think most of the teams agree, there is a correlation. But it is only a correlation, right? We cannot conclude well, which direction, or if there is a third variable that we didn't identify that's that's producing that. So, yeah, but
0: uh, but Brian, so if we, um, uh, I agree with you, and uh, but you know we know that bias, exi- we know that racism exists, you know, or bias exists. Yeah, we know it. Then we conduct the study. Are, are we any, you know, um, are we any better off at the end of it? Do we have we quantified now the, the degree of racism or the degree of bias and what you know how how better off are we sort of scientifically so is this the kind of questions yeah. where instead we should say you know as a society, society we know there is bias and you know we ought to we ought to deal with it uh, you know in certain ways and go uh, you know on 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 principles rather than on what empirical science tells us because empirical science seems to be uh, you know, very limited uh, in what it can tell us.
1: Yeah. In certain so, questions. The uncertain questions. I think you're right that the information that we get out of science is very uncertain. At the same time, it is more certain than any other source of information that we have. Uh, and so the positive frame is that, uh, yes, we will be limited. Uh, for addressing many of the complex questions, given the data and the methodologies that are available to us, but there is no better way to identify what the actual limits of this are. Uh, and so, the the solution for the overconfidence is to better uh, represent the uncertainty, what the uncertainty is, why we have that uncertainty, and what the implications of that uncertainty are for decision making, for policy making. Uh, for making use of these uh, data, rather than purely based on intuition, right? Because I might say, well, no, racism is no longer a problem, right? We integrated bathrooms; it's all fine now. Uh, well, how, how am I arriving at that claim? Well, I, I had a I have a black friend, uh, and so it's you know it must be fine. Uh, so there, we we need empirical data, but we also need all of that caution uh, that goes into what the quality of that data is for making accurate inferences.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is very interesting. It's an interesting problem because the problem is, is that we take, uh, we take this, um, uh, these, uh, these, these conclusions that are that have some degree of uncertainty to them because of everything that you've, you've shown. And, uh, unfortunately we make very strong stride into yeah. policy changes that are based on that, you know, and, uh, it's like, man, um, it's it's a it's a rough, it's, it's a, it's a it rough, like, yeah. uh, rough rough seas to navigate. But even uh, if, I,
0: I, if I can press the point a little bit more, Brian, just, uh, <laughs> so you know, it would be if 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 you had run the the experiment and found that there was no bias, you'd actually would be very surprised and almost. Uh, I mean, what would you believe? Your intuition or the the, the The correlation that um, you know the statistical models or the lack of correlation yeah. the statistical models provide wouldn't you say at some point you know there must be something wrong with the the models because we know and you know we know sort of bias. with with greater certainty it seems we know with greater certainty that bias does exist
1: yeah so that yeah, you're. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about priors, right? If we have our priors about how the world works, and data violate those priors, right. we're going but, to be more. But for me, the,
0: the prior is not is not a yeah. probability. You know, so the priors when people use the term prior now, they they, you know, use this Bayesian sort of yeah. uh, framework where your prior is some kind of number in your mind, uh, some some kind of probability in your mind. No, my, my prior is that I know for a fact that racism is, <laughs> racism exists uh, uh, in the world, and I don't know it because uh you know of uh, statistical uh, revelations <laughs> or things like that you yeah. know i know it's from my my the way my mind apprehends it you right. know my, my apprehension my judgment um that, that it does exist and and i f- i feel firm about it and i don't know that you know studies will shake my you know uh, my yeah my, uh,
1: so but it can my be knowledge in a, yeah so you we can say okay well it certainly exists but a reasonable question to ask is does it exist here and to what extent does it exist here in this circumstance? So I'll, I'll give an example. My, my lab, I, implicit bias is my, actually my substance area of research. Uh, and uh, we uh, have looked at a variety of different decision-making scenarios in, in, lab, in experimental contexts uh, for who is likely to be advanced to an honor society, for example. So here's a, a sample uh, experimental context. You, get, you see 40 different candidates uh, with criteria, their, their science GPA, their humanities GPA, their um, their SAT scores, and then an interview rating. Uh, and you, get, you see a lot of these candidates and your job is to pick uh, about half the candidates to advance to the uh, honor society selection round. And we do this kind of study and that sort of simplistic uh, description of the paradigm uh, in lots of different ways. And we find biases uh, favoring attractive People over unattractive people, even though they have the exact same qualifications, uh, favoring people from your own university against other universities, even though they have the same qualifications. We did that same study uh, with that same paradigm, where we see a pro-attractiveness bias or pro-owned university bias. We did it uh, with uh, race, black and white uh, candidates, and found a pro-black bias. So people were more likely to select a black candidate over a white candidate in that context, and that is opposite. Of where we've seen race bias occur in other kinds of decision-making contexts where we see pro-white uh, biases in those decisions mm-hmm. So for us, this is an interesting conundrum here is a place and we replicated it four times We were so surprised by that because it did violate our priors based on other things But now we are very confident that that happens and it even seems to happen unintentionally So most of our work on implicit bias finds that people's implicit biases are pro-white and that in fact that impacts their behavior in this particular context, for reasons we still don't understand, we see an unintentional pro-black bias uh, for favoring uh, blacks over whites. So for us, that's very much worth trying to unpack to better understand how is it that race and bias and prejudice and all of these things operate and how the conditions of the decision-making context vary as a consequence of this. Right. How that scales up to everyday decisions, we have no idea uh, we are working at the very basic level of, of the decision-making processes themselves.
0: That's very interesting. And you think that uh, historically, you think that uh, whatever you've just discovered may uh, uh, grow? I mean, that's sort of a pro-black yeah. effect. Uh, and, and yeah, well,
1: I don't know. That's, it's a great question, right? Has this changed over time? If we had done this study 15 years ago, would it, right. look, different? Would it look different today uh, with a different political context than when we ran the study three or four years ago? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, those
2: are great questions. So, Brian, uh, you're you're trying to convince Michelle, which is a hard, which is an impossible task. His <laughs> intuition, his intuition, his intuition is wrong. I don't think Michelle has. You know, the, the word intuition, intuition is is, is loaded. I, I wouldn't
0: use uh, intuition. I like judgments better. <laughs> <laughs> intuition conjures, you know, sort of, uh, you know, little spirits or animal spirits or you know, something very. Well, we mystical. have evidence
1: for those Physical. too. So. Yeah. We can, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> so I just in the last uh, few minutes, I just want to uh, Brian have you a- answer a couple of the uh, just a couple of the critiques um, uh, of of the paper. Um, yeah. One major critique uh, was that from from statisticians was that we already know this. We take right. a va- take a vague question, give it to multiple teams, and of course you're going to get multiple uh, answers. Was the question way vague? Would a more precise question have been uh, better? And and why why did we not already uh, know this?
1: So, yeah, I, I love the, the general critique of we already know this. While well, simultaneously, <laughs> people say, this is mind-blowing. Why didn't we know this? <laughs> but I think both of those claims are true. I think, and, and this is often is, is uh, the result of, of many great truths. We are not the discoverers of this great truth. All we did was we presented it in a way that really, uh, resonated with a reader right there 's a rhetorical aspect of this project that brings to light this challenge that is a well understood challenge in data analysis so that 's one answer was just basically to agree Yep, you 're right nothing new here um, but the but the other part of uh, if you if it was too vague a hypothesis, it is uh, I would disagree in the sense that the way we frame the hypothesis is there a relationship uh, between a player's skin tone and their likelihood of getting a red card in soccer? I think that's at the same level of specificity that most research projects start. Uh, yeah. And what additional specificity could we make? Well, we could tell people how to analyze their data. And then, yes, they would analyze the data in the same way. But then that's also not so interesting when you tell people to do something. And if they, if they, if they care to listen to you, then they follow your instructions.
2: Can, can you, uh, can you um, tell us why, um, can you, you know, some folks also said that, Hey, this is just, you know, um, uh, what, what Andrew Gelman, I believe, uh, described as, as the garden of forking paths. Yes. Um, can you tell us why this is not just the garden of forking paths? And, uh, and you know, explain a little bit about what garden of forking paths uh, yeah. refers to.
1: Right. The garden of forking paths is very related in that it lays out the fact that we make choices when we analyze our data. And those choices then influence the subsequent choices. Once I select my model, that might then imply some things or lead me to make different kinds of decisions about how I choose those covariates, which could lead me to make other decisions about how I choose my exclusion rules, et cetera. And so that is a very important part of this phenomena where analysts have discretion. This is somewhat distinct uh, from just that description because each of the teams uh, could have completely for example pre committed to their analysis plan and they still would have made many different decisions So that the fact that there are many choices to make Sometimes those choices are contingent like in the forking paths I do this analysis. It leads me down this direction versus that direction other times It's just a function of the complexity of the analysis Uh, and this project represents a little bit of both of those, depending on how the analysts did their work.
2: What, what do you, what are your solutions to this? How do you, you know, how do you kind of try to reduce the variability here? Um, because it kind of seems to, to, to a clinician, at least, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of the amount of variation, right. In terms, you know, zero (laughs) covariates versus, you know, nine covariates, um, uh, why you know fairly widely different statistical techniques that are used some of low quality some of high quality I venture to bet that if you have somebody who comes in with uh, chest pain and is having you know a heart attack you're you know if even if you if you go to twenty nine different hospitals <laughs> you're, you're going to get you're going to get a very similar you know, a thing happening, there's a protocol, there's a flow, you know, to something that's worked out. Now, that that's a little bit of an unfair comparison, I, I realize. Um, but but uh, the, the point being, how, how do we kind of move forward if you agree that the best thing to do is to try to reduce the type of variability uh, that we're seeing here?
1: Yeah, so there, there are three main solutions uh, in the context that we have. Uh, well, and I guess the first is a meta solution, which is we should be transparent about all these decisions. To the extent that right. we can surface how we make the decisions, then an outside observer can critique that. So that's a base assumption. Make it all transparent. But there's three other solutions, there's three different kinds of solutions. One is pre-registration, right? Commit in advance to how you're going to analyze your data uh, before you observe the data, so that that discretion doesn't isn't contingent on ah on the choices that you could make now that you've seen the data. That doesn't completely address this particular context because any one of those twenty nine teams could have done it as a pre-registration and we'd still get the variation in results. So a second solution uh, is to do, a, and especially in complex contexts like this, Uh, if I can't make all those decisions in advance, uh, is to blind the data. So I could take a couple of the key uh, variables and then randomize the variables across people. So it's no longer the relationships in the data uh, are no longer there between my key variables. Uh, But I can still use the data set to prepare my models to look for outliers and things, clean up the data and then unblind it, resort those so that they're in the right order Uh, and then apply the analysis. Uh, That's a way to deal with the complexity of data, uh, but it still doesn't solve this problem of variation in results across different choices of analysis strategy. So the third solution is a multiverse analysis, which is analyze it all the ways. So let's look at what all the choices that are reasonable choices to make for covariates. Let's look at all the choices that are reasonable choices to make for exclusion rules, and then run every analysis of all of the combinations of covariates and exclusion rules and see what happens in the aggregate across all of these different analyses. And then you can actually estimate how robust the phenomenon is and how variable it is based on the choices that can be made in analysis. And then people can argue about which are the right choices to make in analysis. But at least you know all of that variation and uncertainty that's in the data uh, based on those choices. Well, Brian,
0: you have your work cut out for you uh, compared to what we do, simpleton uh, cardiologists. Where
1: oh, yes, <laughs> of course.
0: Artery. No, I'm, <laughs> and I'm serious. I mean, it's, it's very complex and you're doing an uh, admirable job. Uh, we look forward to, um, uh, you know, following you and following what you're doing with your center. Uh, it's a very important project. And Thank you.
1: Yeah, we're we're having a great time with this, uh, particularly because there's so much interest in the research community about it, and a lot of these core problems are independent of the particular topic of study, whether it's a heart or a person or an atom uh these kinds of issues are are really interdisciplinary and so correct
0: correct make- yeah, absolutely and i look forward to perhaps uh, being vindicated at some point that you guys will say well <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe there's room for it's- for giving you know uh, uh rely on some certain certain principles of uh, of knowledge that um maybe independent of uh, yes. empirical data but but it's uh it's wonderful work and uh and I don't want to, you know, you've been very generous with your time. We could be talking for, for much longer. <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna let you go. So thank you again, Brian. And um, on Twitter, if you can shout out your your handle, we'll have uh, all the information on the show notes. But for people who are just listening, what's your tw- Twitter handle?
1: It's uh, just Brian Nosek, all one word.
0: N O S E K. Perfect. That's right.
1: And if you look at it today, you'll see links to the Many Labs Two project. In case it's useful to link to, uh, in the uh, uh, in addition to the many analysts, we'll, do, we'll put that the in the show notes well. as well. And it's so, I just
2: last word, Brian. It's so it's so great uh, that you know I know you're just, there. There's been a it seems like a tremendous amount of excitement in the research community and the methodology community. Uh, they've been following you. Uh, you know, sadly, I, I only became aware of this, you know, in a, in a much shorter time frame than that. And uh, I think certainly this paper has really kind of broken through to a whole lot of clinicians yeah, kind of an eye eye opening to us. So it's, it's really, really wonderful. So thanks for all the, all the great work that uh, you and uh, your team are doing.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the time and, uh, and hope that the, this conversation is, is useful for the, for the community.
0: No doubt. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at Akkadandkoka.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandkoka.com